What would happen if you build the bar so high it was almost impossible for your competition to keep up? And how can you build further technology into your business to create a user experience that has never been achieved before? Well, you'll know the answer to both those questions after this podcast because we've got Martin Lewis, the business owner next door. He's a real achiever, a millennial with a multi-million pound sustainable, profitable, and definitely disruptive business. And he's going to share all of the answers to those questions. Now, remember to hit follow on this podcast and subscribe to the Business Excellence channel on YouTube. Let's do this. So, are you the Martin Lewis? I get this a lot. Um, I do share a name with a rather famous Martin Lewis. Yeah. Worst time is when you call a taxi and you're in London. Everyone assumes you are the Martin Lewis. I uh, Hopefully one day will ha- be a household name, but yeah. not quite yet. But for now, the money-saving expert gets me a lot of traffic. Yeah, all right. So the money-saving expert pushes you traffic. What about Keanu Reeves and John Wick? Yeah, uh, not the first person to pick up on that. No. I've had that probably about four times throughout my life. I do... Uh, every time, every time I see you, I see Neo. Really? Good. Neo, as in like... Uh, I like the name because it's new, fresh. That's yeah. kind of what I'm doing yeah. in body. Yeah. So that's always good. Um, yeah, I've been getting that since my younger years. And I don't think I've aged much in the last 10 years, apparently, because I still get that same compliment, which is quite nice. Well, well, I'm really looking forward to this interview anyway. And... I got a number of questions for you. And the first one actually is why do you do what you do? Why do I do what I do? Uh, this is a really good question and it comes from the purest of places. So that problem you experience and you want to solve it. So for me, graduation day, I'm a, I'm a musician. I did music. I graduated my graduation day. Didn't quite live up to what I expected. Uh, to characterize it, I spent more money to rent a gown than it cost to rent a car. I spent more time in queues than I did with my family. You know, you get a picture in the post. I didn't get to pick that picture. Someone picked it for me and it went on my wall. So I thought, this isn't right. I'm spending that much money. The apparent value of what I need to get needs to be right up there. Students these days definitely expect this Amazon bar of expectation. And I was paying three grand a year. These students are paying 10 grand a year. The bar of expectation has gone up. So how do we deliver that level of expectation? Because if you feel like you're squeezing that last bit of money out of a graduate on that last day, well, that loses the university advocacy. And we're in the business of building advocacy with students, not only for the university, but for ourselves. So that was the problem I saw. And I thought, how can we fix this? Well, take what I care about by the students, for the students, and build a company around that. So you built a company. How soon after graduating did you build the company? Uh, the day I graduated, literally, the day I graduated. You, what, you, the, the problem hit you so high. Yeah, if you go on Company's House, 12th of July, 2013, the day I graduated, that is my narrative. Oh, that is so inspirational. So wait on, the, the problem hit you, you were so dissatisfied with the level of experience that you had. Yeah. You went and formed the business straight away. Yeah, well, first of all, I went and told all my friends I was going to form the business and they told me I was crazy. But then I said, look how many graduates here. They said, there's 5,000 this week. I said, how much have you spent? They said, 50 pounds. I said, do the math. And they said, okay, that's a lot of money, but A, we're not getting a service that equals the amount we're paying. So I said, we can do that. I said, let's do sustainability. Let's make the gowns out of recycled post-consumer plastic. Let's use other things that we care about and build a service that is fit for purpose. Because graduation 50 years ago pretty much looks the same as it does now. And my aim was to bring it into the 21st century. So back in 2013, you promised me you were talking sustainability back then. Or is that right now? I cared about it, but I didn't know exactly how we could execute on it. So that was where the learning curve came in. Now... I can't claim to have a business background. It's a music background. So these things come slowly. But, but what instrument? Double bass, so bass guitar. We were talking about this beforehand. So yeah. that's like a cello. It's a version of the cello, yeah? It's the biggest of the string family. So it's yeah. the, the huge one that you sit upright to play. Yeah. And you were pretty good at that? Uh, yeah, I was a classically trained musician. I could have gone into orchestras. I could have gone into jazz. But at the end of the day, it's the labor of love. And the passion that hits you when you see something that needs to be fixed far outweighs that kind of musical ability because the musical ability gives you soft skills that you know you can apply in other places which which is why i love what what do you mean soft skills um so interesting point actually i've got i've got a baby daughter and i was talking to my wife and i said how can we teach her things that are going to be useful for when she grows up when we don't even know the jobs that will exist in 20 years time 
that when I was young, digital marketer was not a job. You know, uh, influencer and all these other new jobs did not exist. So how do you train someone for things that do not exist? So it comes down to the soft skills. And that's why I learned it. University through music, leadership, team building, working as a group, as an ensemble, you know, to really get these things that um, bring unity and spread joy through the medium of music. Those things can be applied to anything. Bring unity and spread joy. Yeah, it can be applied to anything. And it's really warm, isn't it? It's really, that, that attracts me. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Music as well can just have all sorts of highs to lows, you know, it, yeah. it fills, fills the full spectrum of feelings. Absolutely. Yeah, a song can be played and it can bring back memories. Yeah, it's powerful. Um, the sound of an accordion can make you think of France. That's how amazing uh, sound can be. It is how amazing sound could be. And are you a millennial or are you Generation Z? I'm born in 1988. I think that technically makes me a millennial. Right. Um, but um, I embody kind of both kind of sets of feelings and sensitivities. Well, look, the, the listeners should know this right now. You are young, you're passionate, you're warm, you're sincere. You had this vision that was built on this, a bad experience to build a business and you built a business. I done it really well. You got some serious ambition and all of that's going to unfold through this, this interview as well. Uh, a couple of things that you touched on there is you wanted to give them the Amazon experience. What did you, what do you mean by that? So, so what I've found with Amazon is that the bar of expectation has just been set so high that once you've done that, it's very hard for competitors to keep up. So it's that kind of first mover advantage, I think it's called. And for us, it was about all the competitors of which there are only a few in our industry. And that's because it's a really deep domain area of events all pretty much the same. So I thought, what can we do differently to really get us that advantage that no one else can copy? Or at least if they could, they would have to chuck so much money at it that it just wouldn't be worth their while. So Amazon is about tech. We thought, how can we build tech into graduations? So for all intents and purposes, students see a graduation gown as kind of a shapeless black sack, if you will. But we had to add some sort of value to it. So we put a RFID chip in the gown. So we made them unique assets that A, first of all, could be managed in our warehouse really efficiently, but B, could be used for some sort of experiential tool. So imagine this, you cross the stage, you shake the hand of the chancellor, which at some universities could be a royal. That picture that's taken gets tagged with the RFID's code, it goes into the cloud, and within 10 seconds you can see it. But by the time you've got back to your seat, you can already see your photo. What, where, where are you seeing it? On your phone? Okay, yeah, exactly, because it's all linked to their online account, they've got an email. They go on their emails, it's right there, that picture from them, 10 seconds before. 10 seconds before, during and, and afterwards or what? Yeah, so whilst they're on stage, our photographer will snap a couple of pictures and they can actually choose any of those from there. It's beautiful because it's instant. It's instant, it's automatic, it's effortless, it's frictionless. My experience is just there. Exactly that. And I thought, why wait to the end of the day? Why have to go through a gallery of 100 people and try and find yourself in this sea of graduates all wearing the same thing? Yeah. Why not get that personalised experience and then build on that? And we thought, what could we do afterwards? You know, once we've got the tech in the gowns, it's about how you can do crazy, amazing things with the software that really excites us. So we thought, how can we do automated printing? Now, you've seen this in kind of boots, et cetera, throughout the years, but at graduation, this is new. You come to one of our print kiosks, you tap your chip, your picture prints out. It's that simple. Yeah, I love something you said. I captured it earlier on. Amazon built the bar so high, it was impossible. Well, you didn't say impossible. You said it was so hard for the competition to keep up. Absolutely. And you know, that's what inspired you, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's the experience you get. It's not about function anymore. It's about experience. And when you're dealing with students who expect a brilliant experience, um, that last memory needs to be the lasting memory. And if you get it right, it pays dividends not only to yourselves, but to the universities, which is why universities are slowly changing their mindsets about old clunky suppliers are coming towards more modern experiential suppliers. Is user experience now, UX as they call it, is it now, is it more important than it's ever been? Or is it just being talked about more than it's ever been talked about? Yeah, I think it's absolutely at the forefront of everything we need to think about. Just look at retail on the high street. If there's not a good user experience, it's just retail something you could do online, then why wouldn't you do it online? There needs to be that extra layer of excitement, um, a buy-in from a customer going in to do something because it's 
only there you can do it. And that's why, you know, services are so important and perfecting those to provide the best experience will set you ahead of the rest of the services. So you use this question, how can we build tech into our business to make us blow the competition away? Absolutely. Some, it's been done for decades like this, you know. So you're a disruptor, really. Absolutely. Is that your, is there, an, are there other questions that, you're, that you had to ask, answer there or was that the question? Yeah, so there's other questions, definitely like sustainability side. So that is something where we're making garments. Now, the apparel industry is incredibly uh, damaging to the environment. You've probably seen the amount, you know, the facts and figures around the amount of garments that go to landfill. And a garment has a life cycle from its cradle to its grave. And what we're trying to do is take that entire um, life cycle and A, raw materials are made from post-consumer plastic waste and B, make it as carbon neutral as possible. Why? What, is that because of current trends? Why do you want to do that? Uh, it's because we are in a unique position. We are making a garment which is the same color every time. It is made in five different sizes. We have a very small set of SKUs that we can actually do this. We can actually go right back to the suppliers and ask them to vet their suppliers and tell them where they got the fabric from. And we can go there, we can measure the carbon outputs across the production process right from the beginning of the raw materials right through to when they land in our warehouse. And we can then offset that. But my aim, and this is probably the most important part of what I say, these days with sustainability, people are just offsetting carbon. For me, that's just like a ship that's sinking and you've got a little bucket and you're trying to chuck water out. What you need to do is be able to plug the gap. And most companies will say, we'll plant a tree for every gown we buy or every garment that's bought. What you need to do is be able to analyze your entire supply chain, work out where the inefficiencies are, make them efficient and produce less carbon. It's about reduction. It's not just about reusing and recycling. It's about reducing at source. And we've managed to achieve a 30% year-on-year reduction on carbon output wow. from our production by uh, analyzing and putting things into practice. Yeah, I mean, that's something to seriously be proud of. I mean, what are the critical steps then on achieving that 30% year-on-year? What are the things that the listeners can apply in their businesses right now? Yes, so absolutely. So it's all about supply chain and knowing exactly what steps there are in the supply chain and speaking to your suppliers to be open and honest and have that conversation about where those things are coming from. Um, and you also need to put your money where your mouth is. That's probably the biggest thing. You need to have a team in China, which I have. I'm half Chinese, by the way. Um, and I have a team. Whereabouts in China? We've... Uh, my mum, it was born in Malaysia. She's from a Chinese family. Yeah. And then we've got relatives that moved over there when they were kind of in their kind of late 20s. And I've got family out there as well. Right. So is it half Chinese or half Malay? Chinese? Uh, half Malaysian Chinese. Half Malaysian Chinese. And half? Half English. Half English. There you go. Yeah. So having a team in China, so that, that helps. So I've managed to build a small team in China and we spend about 7% of our annual production budget just on carbon analysis. That's just going into factories and using these things called greenhouse gas protocols to take measurements to calculate the offset of, let's say, moving this bit of fabric from here to, to there and then the vehicle it was used to calculate the carbon and then we offset that. Now, the, there is an illusion here. People watching this right now might think that you are like the biggest business in the world, but you're not, are you? This is a real success story here because you set your business up in 2013, July the 12th, 2013. <laughs> Remember that day forever, right? I'm just writing that down. July the 12th, 2013. How long did it take you to get your first customer? First customer, good question. So when we first started, we tried to break the market in a different way. Yeah. We tried to go direct to consumer, which at the time seemed like a really good idea. I'll just stop with this, the airplane. It's all right. Um, so when you go direct to consumer, it's, it's a great market, but it's very hard because you're feeding off the crumbs of the contracts. For me, the contracts um, are more, far more appealing. So we said, how can we win the contracts ourselves and the university contract has huge barriers to entry for instance the tender that you see and try to bid for could have prerequisites such as you need to have a minimum turnover you need to have three contracts of a similar size just yeah. to be able to bid for it now how can you get that experience you can't you have to work your way up it took us five years to win a small college which didn't require a tender then a large college and a college group it took you five years to get the college uh to get to the university stores but, but throughout that five years... To get the first... The main customer that you were wanted was five years 
Yes, absolutely. The University of Exeter, who we, where I came from yesterday, um, they put a lot of faith into us. And five years in, they, yeah, it, it, there was some risk to them. And they took that chance and it really paid off. And since then, we've renewed the contract again. So clearly, they're very happy. But and since, since then, though, you've, you've now got a business that's turning over 5 million and you've got 10% market share. Below that, about about 8.5%. 8.5. The fact that you know that number is a good number, though, is, is, is a good indication of... Yeah, absolutely. So you're not the finished article here, but you've got some serious ambitions as well. What, what are your ambitions? Our ambitions are to perfect our products. We're kind of at that point now where I feel our product market fit is where it needs to be, and now we can scale it up. That means being able to find really smart people who I can bring into the company so that we can roll out our services consistently and profitably to more customers. And we would really like to get to 20 to 25% market share, maybe even more in the next three to five years. 20 to 25% market share. How important is having a goal like that for you on a personal level? Uh, really important because you set the goals and you work back from there. And for me... Hey, do you do that a lot? Start with the end in mind? Absolutely. Every single time. Every single time. I kind of even have an idea of what I want the company to look like in terms of the number of people in the company. I'm very a firm believer that I don't want to grow the company to more than 100 people. It's a strange thing to say, but I know that when you get to that sort of size, you start to get new problems in the company where, for instance, I read this article once and it's about tribes. And they said that when a tribe gets to about 100 people, they break out and form a new tribe. And that kind of became this pivotal number in my head that's like, when you get to business of about 100 people, you start to get new abnormal issues where people want to splinter off and do different things. I like the idea of growing it to that stage where I can still look in the whites of people's eyes, make them feel valued, know them on a first name basis. And then if you want to grow it further, there's probably smarter, more clever people that I can bring in to help me do that. But I'm fairly confident we can bring it to a nice, sizable company with about 100 people. You know, when you were saying about the Amazon, build the bar so high, it was hard for the competitors to keep up. I read a book, it must have been seven or eight years ago, it was called Made to Stick. And if you want your, your product or service or your new invention or whatever it is to stick, to take off, mm. it's got to be at least 10 times better than what exists currently. Yeah. And that's the feeling that I had when you, you started saying what you were doing. Now, are you still thinking 10 times better than what you've currently got? Yeah, absolutely. Um, what does that even look like? I mean, yes. tell us something about your vision. Yeah, absolutely. So imagine this. Okay, so you're crossing the stage and you've scanned your gown. Not only does your picture go into your online account, but a little pre-recorded video of you comes up above the stage. A little thank you to everyone in the crowd that's come to support you. Uh, you then walk off the stage. It knows you've walked off the stage. So you've got a beginning and an end point. It takes that seven seconds that you're on stage. Take, turns it into a little video and emails it to you automatically. Not only do you have pictures, personalized message, you have your own personalized video of your seven seconds of fame. Getting emotions here, actually, because in the in the audience, in the in the crowd, if you like, usually the parents and the family and the loved ones, you know, so they're going to be there on that video on screen, and it's and it's going to be a little image of whoever it is saying thank you to the parents and so much and. That experience, that emotional experience in the moment for the families. Absolutely. By, and by the way, I didn't know that. Are there any other things that you can remind us with? And the reason that I've got those things in mind is that I, I've, you may, I think you were aware that in, during COVID, we created the world's first virtual graduation yeah. platform, which means we create all these digital experiences and you know a virtual class photo, a grad clip, all these things that really built what happens in real life into a physical uh, uh, from the physical domain into the digital domain but now we don't use that product so I'm working out how we can take these amazing things we built and extrapolate them into the physical domain the reverse which is a really exciting place to be in because now we can get people that can't attend graduation international students in absentia students to actually attend graduations digitally and actually create that in the physical environment so maybe they appear in a video screen above the stage with a personalized message when their name's called out and names being called out because, you know, I'm a, a musician is very clever because you can analyze an audio spectrum and know when a name's being read out. You don't know what they look like, but you can, audio knows what a name sounds like. So that name's read out and it could play on video automatically. It's been pre-recorded, which is amazing. Yeah, with, with music of my choice. Uh, absolutely. Yeah. What would that be? Oh, yeah. oh I, I think I'd have to have something fun and dynamic. You'd have to be like some kind of rock, some kind of fun. Or some or, or something cheesy. Celebrate by calling the gang. Yeah, well, that's a good one, isn't it? Celebrate yeah. good times. Celebrate good times. We, but that's what you do, yeah? 
Your business is about celebration. Yeah, that's what we're in. We're in the business of life memorable moments. Do you use that song, Celebrate Good Times, Kill Them? Uh, a few universities use it on the way out. So, Do they? Yeah, that's a great song. Yeah, it is a good song. Yeah. All right. Maybe by the end of this, <laughs> I'll have chosen my song. On, on our wedding day, actually, me and my wife, we walked out to, to Disco Inferno. Oh, amazing. Yeah. What energy that brought. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, very interesting. Right. So earlier on, you talked about a lot of barriers to entry and tendering. What are some of the key lessons that you learned there to intenders? So keep going, number one. Number two, take the feedback that you get from any failed opportunities. If you don't get any, ask for the feedback. Number three, structure your answers. Always answer the question first. Number two, provide evidence. And number three, add value. They're the three top things that you need to do when answering a tender. If you can do that consistently for every question, you will at least get a good number of marks. And then at the end of it, it's a price in a box. So my biggest advice to anyone would be scorecard your opportunities. Don't go after everything. Look at the opportunities. If someone's putting 50% of the marks on price and 50% of the marks on written quality, then if you're not able to compete on price, it's probably not the one for you. And you spend a lot of time and effort perfecting an answer that will get you 50 out of 50 on the quality side, but you might get a big fat duck's egg in price if someone just puts a low number in a box. So. For me, it's universities that have a large chunk of marks for sustainability, maybe 20% of the marks on price. That's how you start to scorecard it. So one is on sustainability, what else? Um, price, uh, whether their intentions are about service level um, or whether it's, you know, sometimes universities may ask for small commissions, etc. Not always the case, but, you know, if, if that's a big focus for them, then for us as a student-focused company, we tend to, you know, scorecard that slightly lower. Right. So everything gets a weighting. Uh, if it's over a certain score, do you, do you put more time into that? How long does it take you to actually write the tender? And Yeah, absolutely. So um, it used to take me, for a tender, you normally get about 30 days to write it. Um, after you've kind of... How many hours did you put into that? Uh, a lot, a lot. Weeks and weeks of work. But after a while, when you've had some successful tenders, we have about 66% win rate. You then have your perfect answers to mine from. And then the new tender comes out, you mine the material from there. So the first one takes the longest, the second one's slightly better. And then it, I got it down to about a week uh, with 66% win so rate still. How many tenders did you lose where you'd put like three or four weeks into it? Oh, um, maybe 10, 15 before we won our first one. Absolutely, yeah. So three or four weeks work. Well, is this all day, every day you were doing it? Or are we talking all night through the night? Definitely. And to get that done was the biggest you know, life experience for me, you know, being able to realize what to look out for because A, every university has different intentions. You have to really read between the lines whether it's the right fit for you. And B, the um, universities, um, if they make it a human process, that's where we really champion um, and come out well. Because if there's a presentation phase, I can really bring our proposal to life. And if there's a supplier site visit day before the event, you know, that I can look in the client's eyes and tell them what we really stand for. When it's a written response, you can't do that. In fact, I found procurement very inhuman. Sometimes a tender comes out, you know, across five years, which is the duration of the contracts, it could be two million pounds of revenue. And it's a client facing service, as in you're there looking at their students, handing out gowns, doing photography, but sometimes you never even get to meet the client or they hand you the work. So it goes from here's a tender, here's your response, You've won the work. Let's now meet you. It seems strange to me. You do it. So when there's a presentation stage, you get to meet the client beforehand. That's something that I really look forward to. Right. The presenting. We'll come to that in a second. I mean, I mean, first and foremost, though, 10 or 15, let's say it was 12 or 13. Let's go with 13. Lucky for you. You had the 13 <laughs> and you got it. You know which one it was that you got your first one? Was it on the 15th, the 13th, the 14th? Oh, goodness me. Um, it probably was around, yeah, 13 or 14. Well, I, I was putting in two at the time. Let, I don't know which one went in first. Let's just say it was 13 and yeah. use that as the lucky number, yeah? Um, the level of persistence that you had, most people would have given up. It's, it's practice. Everything is a skill. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So we knew if we kept tendering, taking the feedback, applying what we'd learned to the next tender, eventually we would be successful. You, how did you know that? Um, I've, I've used it in other reddits in my life. You know, I'm quite disorganized sometimes. So I said, organization is a skill. 
practice being organized and you'll get better at being organized. So the same with tendering, you know, take what- Is that what you do with anything that you wake up? Absolutely, yeah. I get used to things very quickly and good at things because I practice them. So I can, it's a musical trait. Again, you know, That's you press it. your instrument, you get good at it. I've made, been able to go from grade uh, five to grade eight in an instrument in a year, which normally takes about three to four years, just because I dedicated a set amount of time. In one instrument or in several instruments? Uh, I, I've got grade eight on about four instruments, but I did, went from grade five to grade eight in one instrument in one year through uh, the double bass. Through practice. How many hours of deliberate, intentional, focused practice was that? Oh, a, a lot. You know, I was at school at the time, so I'm talking uh, five, six hours a day sometimes. Five or six hours a day, I mean. Yeah, that includes, you know, some of it's rehearsing with the ensemble, yeah. et cetera. Not just me on my own in, in a practice. Are you familiar with the outliers and 10,000 hour rule? And... No, I'm not so familiar. All right, that's all right. So, look, persistence is a trait that you've got. I mean, are you a visionary? I like to think so. So, our main aim is not to just sell gowns. We want to create the first fully sustainable garment in the UK apparel industry, which is the graduation gown. There's only about five companies that make them in the UK. We're making them carbon neutral and from recycled post-consumer plastic. If everyone did that, we would be thought leaders in the category that caused that change, which made the first pretty sustainable garment in the UK. That's my vision. If we can achieve that, we've done something amazing. That's not happened anywhere in the world, I don't think. Has it happened in other industries that's inspired you? Um, I don't think it has, to be honest. Uh, maybe there are some projects that are getting close to that, but as, particularly in the apparel industry, which is like number two in terms of polluting the environment, you know, that would be an amazing achievement. And from that, I'd like to inspire other people in niche industries to start off with to do the same, but in larger industries to then follow. Look, this is all values driven. I get it. It's coming from you as a person here that you really believe wholeheartedly in sustainability and you value it. Is that really helping you market the business currently? Because it's a trend. It's really important to the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you, do you get PR on that? Uh, yeah, we do. Every, well... Every person that does a finance deal for us wants to shout about it on their social media because they have a quota of sustainable companies they need to work with. If you if you Google like Lloyd's graduation gown, Lloyd's Bank did a really nice piece on us. There's all sorts of, you know, anyone who we work with really likes to champion the fact that they're working with a sustainable company. And that's why I've realized actually, people say that they're putting profitability before sustainability quite often. That's why they can't do it. But sustainability creates profitability, 100%. Why? Um, well, there's very few ventures you can do where you do something sustainable and it makes you money on day one. There are a few, um, but there's very, there's not many of them. For us, um, we knew that as a modern company dealing in the market of students, the students cared about sustainability. So if we could build that into the service. It was a no brainer for them. If I hold a gown up in my right hand and say, this is made from virgin polyester. And what in my left hand says is made from recycled post-consumer plastic. They both look the same, which one would you like? They're going to pick the recycled one every time. So that was a no-brainer that we should do that. And when I say it builds profitability, it's because universities can ignore anything apart from the voice of the students and potentially a scandal. You know, so when the voice of the students is saying, we need sustainability, and right now, well, plastic, plastic waste is at the top it, of the agenda. It's the voice of this nation, this nation as well, isn't it, really? I mean, yeah. Are we the capital of it? Are we, are we the capital of it? Is the UK the capital of sustainability worldwide? Or um, who's, the, who's the worldwide global leaders in this? Um, to be honest, I'm, I'm not entirely sure. There's a good question. But in terms of what I've seen and what I've followed, um, I really enjoy like, looking at the efficiencies that companies in Tokyo, et cetera, yeah. and in Japan in general can you know, uh, execute. What it's about is the ability to execute things sustainably consistently every time so that's they've got that whole delivery and execution thing in japan mapped out I mean, yeah absolutely for, you know for decades they've been through them through them phases i mean they've got the considered approach to yes, absolutely to and that's it if every can, project and forecasting down to a t so nothing is wasted that's what it comes down to it's not just about the production process it's about data and forecasting and making sure you're just making what is needed and particularly in our industry are you all over that? Are you on top of that? Um, we've got some really clever people. Yeah, our operations director is, is, can control the universe. What do you mean? All right. You, <laughs> control the universe from Excel and its data. And we, every year, as we get more students in, we know exactly um, what we need to produce so we don't overproduce because that's wasteful. And marketable. 
Yes, absolutely. So, so you know those numbers. You can tell the world those numbers. That's what I'm getting from you here. Right? You know, I'm, I'm leaning into this sustainability creates profitability and I'm finding the evidence from what you're saying because you knowing that number, you can market that number. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, marketing is, is so important. Yeah, absolutely. Is marketing the most important part of business growth? I think so. So it's about that apparent value that you can add that no one else can. As being able to get in front of universities who are looking to change because they know the students are asking for it. And timing is everything. Right now, students are demanding greener suppliers. Yeah. And we are there. And I mentioned about being a modern company earlier and sustainability being a really important factor. But just being a modern company in general to me is really important. So when I talk about having a workforce of 100 people, I fully expect that by, I get, by the time I get to that number, we'll have people in the business with visible disabilities that work for us. It would, you know, there'll be some talented people that apply. And if we don't have a workplace that's fit to cater for that and have the facilities that we should have, then we will lose that talent. So every decision I make is how can we build a company that's fit for purpose for the whole demographic of people that we're going to serve and also going to employ in the future. Look, this, you, you, there's a lot of things that shine in here as you're speaking. And I got to mention this. I find myself mentioning this on most podcasts now. But you've got the right thing to do. You are doing the right thing. It's the right thing to do. And it's, it's, it's about something that's bigger than you. Yeah, It's for the world, for society, for sustainability. And there's a lady, Mary Portis. You might be familiar with Mary. You might not be. But I always think of her when I start saying, saying things like this. Did you see Mary Potts at BizX? I didn't. You know who Mary Potts is? Don't, sorry. Yeah, she basically says, you better be a good person. Okay. <laughs> because if you're not, the, the world will find you. And you've got that going on. You're a good person with this. You want to do the right thing. That drive is there every single day. What are some of the biggest mistakes that you've made in business? Biggest mistakes? Um... I'd say in the early days, assuming that winning a big university would be something that took a couple of years. You know, it's very, there's so many contracts that come out and they come out. assumptions. Yeah, absolutely. So many assumptions. Uh, you know, you, everything's an assumption until you validated it, right? So. it's a good point. <laughs> uh, so we're just making all these assumptions and just assuming they're going to happen and lots of things didn't happen. And by that point, you're kind of burning through cash. Um, you're kind of. How much money did you lose because of faulty assumptions? Um, I was a teacher before I started the company and I took all my money from that and I put it into the business and we were running pretty low at some point. We're talking, you know, like hundred to 150,000, you know, money put in just to get to the stage we're at. And, you know, it's a bit of a gamble, but, and also near the beginning of your journey, you've got threats coming from every direction. You know, people don't like new incumbents in an industry where there's only been four or five incumbents. So not everyone's going to, you know, play nice. Um, and some people try to bury you. And you had that. Oh yeah, absolutely. I won't go into detail, but you know, yeah, that absolutely happens. About two years in, all, everything's coming at you from all directions because no one wants you. How did you handle it? Um, someone said something to me that was really, really eye-opening and stuck with me ever since. They said, if someone tries to bury you, I think it's a Mexican proverb, it's, it's they tried to bury us, but we are a seed and we will grow. So if someone, tries to do that to you, you just use that energy and channel it into growth, yeah. positivity. It's quite cathartic, really. Yeah, absolutely. So you can apply that to anything. And, you know, that drive has now come through uh, to the whole company. You know, when I tell them, you know, what we've been through to get here and everyone is, if you came into my business and I wasn't there, you'd be able to point at any one of five people and think they own the business because they talk about it as passionately as me. You know, you wouldn't be able to tell. You just think, well, they must own it. They, they, you know, they clearly love this and I think that when you've got that you've struck gold and it's because of these stories and the problems we've been through and the failures that you know you've asked me to kind of discuss that they you know can enjoy the the triumphs all right so assumptions is one thing from a mistake maybe that's cost you 100k 150k you didn't quite say that I mean would you be prepared to put how much money you wasted on faulty assumptions um I, I can't say accurately, so yeah, yeah. but I know that's how much my investment has been over the years, and that's how much I kind of 
had in the tank to get to that first contract. Of course, during that period, we are still generating revenue. And we're kind of, what we're doing is experimenting. Business at the beginning is one giant experiment. You dangle lots of hooks. Test, 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 test. Yeah, and when you catch a big one, you put your money there. So we thought direct to consumer is really going to work for us. So let's get um, a thousand of every design manufactured in China brought over to the UK. I've still got some of that stock sitting in my warehouse. Quite a costly mistake. Um, but we realized quite quickly that you create real relationships with the universities if you don't go after the crumbs of the contract. You say, we're here, this is what we do. When your contract's up for renewal, let's have a conversation. And universities buy into positivity, um, student-led uh, thinking, because they know that's where they need to do better. When you catch a big one, you put your money there. That's a really good night, little phrase. We'll, we'll, we'll quote you for that one. Are there any other mistakes that you've made along the way? Um, I don't know if it's a mistake, but it's definitely something that's hard to undo, or at least the small problems become abnormally big problems as they grow is employing family members and people we know near the start because you want people that will sleep on the office floor with you. You want people that no matter what time it is, they'll get the job done and execute the task. So I had um, friends, family come in, which are great. And that some of them are still with us, uh, particularly some friends that I really value. But it's kind of taking that into the realms of professionalism, I guess is the word, professionalism and excellence. Um, because when you get into these habits of, you know, uh, people looking after like end-to-end -end processes and they really want to own that forever. It's very hard to break them out of that. Uh, I think um, Action Coach and Mark particularly um, says, uh, you know, you've got to manage the processes, not the people. Where we, at the beginning, we we're doing a lot of managing people, not processes. And now we're trying to come out of that mindset and uh, manage processes. Uh, that was- It's a really good point, isn't it? It's not really a failure because we got there in the end, but it, it, it's more difficult when you're dealing with people that have been there since the start and they're a friend as well. They've got different um, you know, motivations because obviously they also want to see you succeed. Do you expect people, you know, that, that's the kind of, I, I was kind of comparing you with Elon Musk for a second, you know, at Tesla, because like, he was prepared to go in, into the office and work out as many hours as required, sleep on the floor, as you put it, to make this business succeed. Do you expect that from your team? I, in the early days, yes. And that's why, you know, friends and, you know, we could give it a red hot go and enjoy it as well. And I love those days. Uh, but now we're trying to build an environment where the psychological safety of the business, yes. which is a big thing, is, is perfect. It, it, we have, I have a real push on people feeling comfortable in the business because when we win a big contract, yeah. we want everyone to celebrate. We don't want that one department who had, suddenly has a whole load of yeah. work to go, oh no, how are we going to handle this? So for me, it's about psychological safety, being sure everyone feels comfortable in the business, uh, positive. And I spend a lot of my time, you know, I do one-to-ones with everyone once a week and they come and talk to me and we talk about anything. If they don't want to necessarily do the one-to-one, -one, they can come and just have a coffee and a chat, but they get, they get that time with me and it allows us to kind of see that everyone's enjoying the company, fitting into the culture nicely. And then we can take feedback in a conducive environment, which is also uh, convivial to getting, you know, kind of more personal requests, you know, that might come through where people wouldn't want to ne necessarily voice it to their uh, direct line manager. And it's, I, I like that, that I can sit down with those people. What's the secret then to success in working with your friends? Because a lot of people say that as one of their mistakes, you know, I had my friends and it became a bit awkward and hard and, you know, I'm going to fire your friends is one of the, one of the hardest things that people talk about. What's the secret to you being successful in that? Um, I think it's, I like to be very approachable and discuss things. So my number one uh, trait I, I really like about myself is that if someone says something and it just sounds, well, it makes me feel slightly awkward or strange, I'll stop and I'll say to myself, this person's trying to achieve the same thing as me. So therefore, there's a point in the middle where we can all agree. And what it comes down to is context. So there's probably something he hasn't told me yet or I haven't told him. And if we discuss this for 10 minutes, we're going to find we're after the same thing. Where do you get that level of level-headedness from? I think I realized one day that everything's about context. If you speak to someone long enough, you understand why they made that decision. <laughs> and it may just be that they made that decision because you hadn't told them something. And that's why it's not quite right. But quite equally, they could tell you a load of things that you hadn't thought about. And you're like, you are spot on. You spot something that I didn't even think about. So everything comes down to context.
Yeah, very nice. Very, very nice. So, in your opinion, what is business excellence? Uh, business excellence is um, being able to provide value to your customers and a product market fit, which fits the evolving market. So it's uh, there, but it's mutating as it goes and you're constantly innovating and that you're providing consistent results to your clients. Business excellence is also about growth and challenging yourself. Uh, the moment you stand still and stop, you know, striving for the next development, that's the moment that your competitors catch up. Business excellence is always selling, always growing your client base. You never stand still, even when you're happy and you think you've got enough clients, you do not stop. You keep selling. Business excellence is all of those things, but it's also about the team and making sure they're happy with what you're doing. And what's the first step in creating business excellence? Um, first step is having the right product for the market, which means uh, don't just go out there and you know start buying stock like I did, go out there and spend, you know, not too long, um, just speaking to the clients and working out all the different routes you could go down before you start and then find out what the marketplace wants. Yeah, exactly. And then close off the routes that aren't working for you until you get that channel, which is your niche. Let's do a slightly different tactic to the same question. Cause I love your answer. What's personal excellence? Personal excellence. Um, I think personal excellence is not leveraging your position too much. Like you've got leverage, but you should really be able to make everyone feel like they can come and talk to you, um, that you are uh, approachable because mm. there are those structures in the business that need to be there and you need to put that structure in place. But as the person at the top, you need to be able to feel that, you know, you, people can come and speak to you. And personal excellence is always having a level head. That thing I said, you know, about not ever letting your stress come out in the conversation as a loud voice or you know a comment that was offhand. It's about having form across your entire you know day, work life, and and home life. And what's the first step then in creating personal excellence? First step is coming to terms with your own insecurities. How do you do that? Um, thinking a lot after a conversation. I'm the sort of person who leaves a conversation if it didn't go quite well I spend about an hour working out what did I say to cause that quite often it's nothing I've done potentially but I always feel it is and there probably is some impetus that I've created that's caused that and if you can analyze that then you can really you know work out how you can improve yourself for me it was always like an element of guilt I don't, I've never really talked about this so it's kind of all quite fresh but um you know when someone says something maybe you've done something wrong or you've done this isn't right your immediate feeling is guilt right and guilt can come across in very strange ways. It could be you lashing out and saying, no, I've done that. Mm. It could be you just sitting back and worrying, or it could be you going, that's correct, you know, let's let's solve this. So guilt is probably the biggest driver for me of strange behavior. Do you still get those feelings? Yeah, absolutely. If I see someone who's working really late at night and I think this should be better, that you should have had support here so this didn't happen, I feel the guilt of that entirely. Well, let's, let's be clear here. I mean, you're still very young. Yeah, absolutely. We're serious serious ambitions to do the right thing for the world and you know build your businesses how old are you 34 34 I, yeah i have a childlike face so i look slightly younger but 34 yeah if you do say so yourself you do yeah <laughs> yeah you do um all right i've got some quick questions for you here so of course what's your favorite book my uh, favorite book uh, attraction oh yeah gina whitman why did you choose that uh recommendation from a friend yeah Lovely. but what did you get from the book um just, just so much, um, and uh, I lift. Uh, yeah, I'm on the road a lot, so I can listen to it as an audio book. And yeah, good structure for business. Uh, what about your favorite movie? Favorite movie, uh, absolutely has to be Dead Poet Society. Oh yeah, yeah. good old Robin it, Williams. Eh? It's uh, I can see some nods around the room there. Um, so oh, he's he's kind of a, a little bit. Um, I the business though, isn't it? It's about being the best version of yourself, no matter what environment you're in. Because, you know, if you haven't seen it, go and watch it because it is amazing. It will change the way you think about yourself. Um, it's about being the best version of yourself. It has a sad ending, but it's about a teacher and he encourages his students just to do what they want to do in the creative environment, which is amazing. Yeah, I mean, are you that person now? 
I like to think that there's definitely elements of that. I like to facilitate creativity because creativity in a business is what people enjoy. And, you know, being able to say yes to things and to a point where you know it's not working. So then you can say, we tried it. It's not worked. There's value in that, you know, means that we saved X amount of money from doing this thing that wouldn't have worked. But thank you for, you know, bringing it as an idea. Um, you know, I like to do that. That's that's one of the fun bits of business. Right. Speaking to a musician here. So what's your favorite music? Favorite music. So style of music. Um, I, I love classical music. Absolutely. I, I'm more. How often do you listen? Um, every day. Yeah, every day. I'm more a fan of um, less classical, more romantic music, and maybe even stuff that's kind of uh, late romantic. Are you a romantic yourself? Um, in terms of my musical listening, yes. In terms of, uh, I, I do like me, me and my wife um, tend to, you know, have a really good relationship where we talk about everything, and she's a psychologist, so she knows when I'm stressed before I do, and yeah, yeah and but it also means that she's got a real, you know, sensitive side that I really love, and we. We do all sorts of lovely holidays and we like to take time for our, uh, you know, well-being in terms of relationship. She moved over from Cyprus to be with me here. So that's one of the biggest challenges, actually, in business. You've got someone who's come over to spend their adult life with you and you've got to spend time with them the evenings, the weekends. How do you fit that in and the business? But she's also... How do you do it? um, First of all, it's that open conversation that it's not always going to be possible. And um, she understands that. But also, I'm away in the summer for events and all sorts so right now she's in cyprus so it's about understanding a framework where she can enjoy the downtime in between and go to cyprus spend time with her family and friends and then i'll go over in august with where our baby is as well and we'll spend the whole of august by the beach you know there's always a way to make it work if you discuss it and it's just about being open with that and then then that removes the guilt when suddenly you have to change plans or you haven't told someone something and they realize actually i'd made all these plans and because of one fact you hadn't told me um we can't do that there's always a way to Make it work if you discuss it. If you could have one superpower, what would it be? Yeah, I think with superpowers, it has to kind of be ingrained to what I care about. So sustainability, I, I always talk about it. Yeah, yeah. I care about it so passionately. Just to be able to be like a siren call that if I tap on a, a business, a businessman's shoulder and say sustainability is paramount, the world is getting hotter. If you don't think about it, every business needs to, then we've got a problem here. And just to change everyone's mindset so they start building in sustainability before profitability that's the first time that we've ever had on that so thank you very much all right who've been the three biggest trusted advisors in your life three trusted advisors a really good question number one has to be has to come from family my mum so when my dad passed away um, I was 11 and she kind of did everything she could to give me a good education told me to work hard basically would be a sounding board worked nights and days as a nurse and just taught me the the value of hard work and is that where you you care from i like to think so actually yeah so i mean like any kind of asian mom she's a fiery passionate person but there comes particularly with the nursing a level of care and i think that's translated into kind of my daily life and the way yeah. i interact with people and uh, number two would be uh, my business mentor uh, mark dilks from action coach who really just inspires me to do better yeah and gives you know I like to speak to people. I like to get good ideas. I like to get three good ideas, bounce them off each other and work out which one's the right one for that particular situation. He always has some great, you know, suggestions and really, you know, I can at the drop of a hat, I can call him and he'll just before in December, we had some real, you know, problems. Uh, someone had a heart attack in our company and he's put out a message, you know, how can we really show the company that we're talking uh, compassionately about the situation, thriving to overcome it. And he, you know, he helped me with that. He says, that's it. That's invaluable. And the third one, just uh, people that I know from school that are now doing amazing things in startups. I've got a friend, Jake Jones, who's doing a legal tech uh, company called uh, Legal OS, who just raised 10 million euros. And if you want some great ideas, he, he has them and he can just um, break down what you need to do to, uh, you know, make your business look A, attractive and B, to communicate the value of it concisely beautiful and and if the listeners could do one thing from listening to this what do you think they should do or could do um the listeners so if you're a, a student listening to this i'd say get inspired to start a business you know it's really good fun and um, even if you're still at uni there's no better time to start there's so many um options now there's universities have these small um, companies is one that I saw recently called Hazar 
where you can actually like um, sell your own items on the university marketplace. So students leaving the university with all this stuff in the cupboard goes to landfill. And now you can actually put it on this app, Hazar, and students coming in for the new year can just buy it off you. So each university is like its own little economy. So why does it all just stay there? Why is it all going to landfill? So students can really, you know, just start selling straight away. So do that sort of thing. Start your own business. By the time you finish uni, you've learned a lot of things that you've got, and tested a lot of assumptions that otherwise you're going to do when you leave uni. What about the people that have already got business right now? Yeah. What's the first thing they should do? I think it's um, look at your team and see if you've got the right people that, so the, the sleepless nights are shared. So I was a solo founder, so I had a lot of the sleepless nights and now we've got a really great team and there's people that I trust. In fact, they're far smarter, far more talented than me. I let them own certain uh, problems and parts of the business. And therefore, you know, we share that burden. Make sure the sleepless nights are shared. That's really good. You know, the, the thing that was springing out to me in, in my attempt to answer that question, what's the first thing that people should do? I mean, I'm inspired from you to be thinking about two things, sustainability and disrupting. Proudly disrupting, actually. Because that's what you do. You proudly disrupt because you're massively into sustainability. What's your favorite part of today? Favorite part of today? Um, definitely just getting my mind and brains picked on a few things that I hadn't thought about before. I, I like that because when I leave here instantly, I'm going to go and spend probably about a week thinking about those sorts of things because you can't answer them defendably and you know in a way that kind of excites people, then you probably haven't thought about them hard enough. Well, you know what? I had, I had a number of written down. I always make notes during this. I put boxes around my favorite things. I've got several. We've got about five or six boxes here. So I think sustainability creates profitability. I think Absolutely. understanding that's before that. Yeah, I, I'd say anyone starting a business, actually, if you can create a business yeah. that creates sustainability, but it can be rolled out to other companies profitably from day one, then you've cracked one of the world's greatest problems. Yeah. Absolutely. Because sustainability, as you try and build it into a company, often costs you money. If you can create a solution that actually creates profit for that business from day one, then you've, you've solved it. There we have it. The original Martin Lewis. Thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.